Hey folks, it's John from A's for Alcoholic again. Today's conversation is with Chrissy Rivers. She runs the Black Recovery Matters uh, Instagram page. And it was it was a lot of fun to sit down and talk with her. We talked about donuts and muffins and road rage and definitely alcoholism was in there. Rehab and recovery and inclusion and trying to find somebody who is relatable to you in recovery and how important that is. But also one of the things that I have learned is reaching out and listening to other voices and listening to other people who are not like me, who are in recovery, who have very different struggles, ones that don't even occur to me. And that was the biggest thing for me from her was that there is all manner of traumas and issues that happen in and around people of color, black people specifically, that white people don't see, they don't feel, they don't hear. And that has a huge impact on their substance abuse and their subsequent recovery or lack thereof. So it was really great to talk with her and we had a lot, a lot of fun and I hope you enjoy it. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Chrissy Rivers. Thank you for doing this. I really, I really do appreciate it. I know that everybody's even in these times, it can be busy and hectic and we all have like we have lives to deal with, you know, yes. and so I appreciate you coming on here and um, discussing, telling, sharing your story. Thanks you know, for having me. Mm-hmm. One of my, one of the first things I always like to ask people is, and I'm curious kind of about the, the, the chronological or the, the, um, their personal history with alcohol, when the first time that you recognized it, whether it be growing up or in your own life or parents or grandparents. Is there, is there a long history, short history? Where do you remember it first being something that affected mm. you or that you thought about? Um, I mean, my family always drank, mm-hmm. um, you know? So, I mean, basically as long as I can remember there was alcohol around, you know? Like my extended family, my mom was um, pretty dry for the first years of my life. And so, you know, it was just like, I always thought it was, just everybody having fun you know I mean Mm -hmm. I I'm an extrovert and family gatherings were like a blast for me even you know I can remember at like five or six just loving to be around cousins and uncles and everybody's always drinking and laughing and you know um I didn't I took my first drink at 11 and um which is pretty young but um you know I it when the girl I was with said um you want to drink some wine her parents weren't home you know mm-hmm. and she was like do you want to drink some wine with me do you have, have you ever had wine and I was like yeah sure lots of times I'd never <laughs> sure but you don't want to seem not cool at 11 <laughs> right <laughs> right yeah I've done this I do this all the time sure mm-hmm. uh, me and my Barbies um and uh you know it was like it was such a spiritual experience it was transformational you know I mean, it was the first time I ever like felt all right. I was chronically uncomfortable 
mm-hmm. as I mean, those are my my all of my memories are being chronically uncomfortable and then finding this answer, you know, mm-hmm. at 11 years old, too. Was it was it a, what, so you immediately realized this is what's going to make everything feel better? Yeah. 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 I mean, and that probably sounds extreme. I mean, I I know that it's like that for a lot of people who are in, you know, recovery. I mean, Mm -hmm. for whatever reason, I think a lot of us have felt uncomfortable, like all of our life, you know? Um, Well, you know, I think it's part, I imagine, and for myself, I feel my brain is wired in a different way because even now um, I, I find myself thinking alcoholically about other stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk a lot about food on the podcast too, and how I, I literally cannot, I, I am almost to the point where I can't have ice cream in the house in the same way that I can't, you know, couldn't have alcohol. And so, you know, things like that. Yeah. So it's, it's definitely something that's wired in my brain for substances that give me that feeling of calm and relief and, or, or excitement and fun, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So, so at 11 years old, you have your first drunk. Did you get your first hangover then too? Or was it, was it a, yeah. I mean, I love to, I love to talk about this only because, um, I, I feel like, you know, looking back, like in the rear view, um, it's poignant for me because I had this like spiritual experience and I felt so cool and comfortable Mm -hmm. and fun. And I went home and I told one of my cousins, um, that I was drunk and she, you know, we're, we're kids. And this was like, you know, I'm in, I'm in my forties now. And so this was like, you know, Nancy Reagan, dare kind of, you know, stuff was really big and just say no. And so when I told her I'd been drinking, she immediately went and told on me, you know, Mm -hmm. like you got to tell somebody she's Mm -hmm. in trouble. And I mean, I was, (laughs) you know, still, I'm like, you're such a snitch. Um, and uh, I think that's important because I don't remember what the consequences were. Like, I know that I would have had consequences for that, but they didn't matter, mm-hmm. you know, because there was really nothing that was going to stop me from doing that again as soon as I possibly could, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, How soon was that? Uh, within a couple of days. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. So you knew how to, where to find it at 11, even after a yeah. couple of days, it was okay. For sure. I mean, like I said, my whole family is full, my, not my mom and my stepdad, but like we, we were really a close family and everybody there's, there are little pockets of, you know, addiction throughout all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I already had friends that were getting into that stuff. You know, I'm, um, I, I should mention probably that I'm, I'm biracial. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm the oldest of four and my um, siblings, so I'm biracial, but my siblings are all white. And my mom, who's white, married a white guy who's not my dad. Um, so I was the product of rape and I didn't know it. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I look different than everybody and they have this relationship, my mom and my stepdad. And, um, you know, I just thought that he was my dad. Right. Um, because you're, I was little and right. I was two, two or three when they got together and he was just my dad. So I right. thought when they had babies, those babies would look like me, you know? Mm-hmm. 
And then one day I come, you know, my mom's pregnant and this baby is there. One day I come home from my grandparents and my, I had gotten spanked at my grandparents. So I was already pissed. I'll never forget that. Um, and, uh, and I come home and I'm like mad that they've sent me to Mima's house and there is this baby and he's blind and his eyes are blue and his skin is white. And I'm like, what is up? You know, <laughs> what? And he had all this stuff, you know, like new babies need all this stuff. So right. all these, what I thought were like presents, you know, <laughs> these were necessities. These were right. Okay. These were right. you know, new baby necessities, not presents, but right. as a little, as a, as a little kid. Yeah. He has all this stuff. He looks like them. You guys ship me off to Mima's and I got a spanking, you know, and he doesn't even look like me. What is going on? And, you know, I was in kindergarten and kids had been saying like, you know, that's not your mom. You know, she would pick me up or my stepdad would pick me up and they would say, that's not your dad. You must be adopted. And so one day I came home from school after asking lots of questions and my mom had read um, like a women's magazine and in it, it talked about parenting honestly and like telling your kids, you know, the like brutal truth. And so she did. She sat me down and said, you know, you're a product of rape. There's no Easter bunny and there's no Santa Claus. How and old? I was six. Yeah. It was a tough day. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And I mean, I was already like really just you know, anxious and uncomfortable before that, but it just got, it amped, you know? And so I think I have struggled with mental health issues still today. And I had been, I'd been seeing doctors and therapists and whatnot from nine. So by 11, I felt, you know, like I, I just was already attuned to my, my discomfort. It had been a focus, you know? So to feel comfortable was a revelation, you know? Yes. And I would do anything to feel, to continue to feel. And so, so at 11, it's off and we know what to do and we have it figured out. You have found the magic elixir and there's no reason not to follow that path. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, In my mind, it made everything better. Why would everybody not drink all the time every day and how does a how does how does a child at that age find liquor i mean it's just in the house so it doesn't yeah, I mean, uh, there really wasn't a lot in our house no i mean right. I, I i would go out to friends houses mm-hmm. um i was hanging out a lot of the time with like the smoking kids you know and so we made it pretty a big part of our daily kind of routine was, mm-hmm. you know, hey, I got a little pot, you know, hey, I'll so and so will buy us beer, you know, right. yeah. hey, my mom's got some of this. If everybody can put in five or ten dollars, you know, we'll get mm-hmm. some of this. So as many days as I could, you know, that's and what this I would is do. What sixth grade? This is junior high, yeah, yeah. high school. I mean, this mm-hmm. just continues on. Yeah. Yeah, I was in treatment for the first time in eighth grade. Um, what was that like? Uh, <clears throat> don't laugh at me, but it was kind of awesome. <laughs> okay, well, I mean, that's that's good to hear. Yeah, well, wait, 
that's not true. The first time, the first place that I was was shocking and startling. And I was there for a really short amount of time. And it was more for like mental health. You know, my family mm-hmm. didn't know that I was drinking like that. They just knew something was like way off the rails wrong, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and my first day there, there was a guy who got like locked up. He was, he was losing his mind. And you, you know, like my mom had said, we're going to the doctor. And, um, and so I'm like, okay, you know, I didn't realize she packed a bag for me. And then we get there and I'm, I'm getting checked in and I'm, you know, I'm scared. I remember, I remember not being mad, but like really afraid, you know? Um, Cause I didn't know what this really meant. And, um, and as I'm getting checked in and like settled at the nurse's station, there's a guy who's losing his mind and there are people in white coats, like pinning him down to a ping pong table, you know? And it was like, what is this going to be? So that was terrible. And I was only there for a few weeks. Um, But a few, like maybe, I don't know, sometime in that same year, it feels like it was maybe just a couple months later, I went to a long-term treatment. Um, And I made a lot of friends there. I I only think that that's important because during, I I ended up in treatment maybe three or four times before my, you know, before I was an adult Mm -hmm. and at none of those, there wasn't one of those times where I thought I'm going to, I'm going to stay sober, but you know, they felt like summer camps or sort of, it was comfy, cozy. And, you know, I guess we'll just do this for a little while until they let me go. And exactly. Yeah. I met a boy in the second one and we, you know, would like make out by the washers and dryers when we could sneak around you know and um I mean it was just a lot of fun that one Mm -hmm. um you know but I I never I never would have called drinking or drugging again I mean I have a lot of drugs in my past too and um I never would have called any of that relapse I guess is what I mean you know Mm -hmm. because it wasn't I had no intentions of not drinking or getting high Sure. Yeah. yeah, that's this is just the it becomes part of the experience, part of the um well, this is just the cost for doing the thing that I do and you kind yeah. of you, this is the acceptable um whatever supposed punishment for continuing to do the thing that I'm going to do anyway. Yes. And you know, like then that's, you know, the the I'll just go through the motions and then I'll be back to doing what I want to do. Exactly. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. I got to check this box for the people that care about me, you know, right. make them and, feel good. Do it for mom and dad and, you know, teachers. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And therapy's kind of cool. Like I'll talk about how I hate everybody and everybody sucks and, you know, yeah. <laughs> what a release, all this, all this attention, you know, I, th- I feel like that, you know, that, that plays into it too sometimes is that, you're like, oh, all these people care about me. This is great. And then, and then when it's all gone, then I'll go back to drinking. And so this, this, you said that you did this several times. Now, is this within, as before you were an adult? So this was yeah. in junior high and high school. You go in yeah. and out of these treatment centers. Yeah, before I was 15, um, because at 15, my parents divorced, and I, um, they had, they ended up having three, three kids together, and me. They separated. And um, at that point, my mom, who had really, she'd been 
super dry when I was a kid, you know, she was like Mm -hmm. the sibling of her five that didn't really drink or use drugs or anything, you know, Um, but their marriage had gotten really chaotic and suddenly she was like off to the races, you know, Um, and my stepdad took his kids, we live in Texas and he took them to Florida and um, I was older than all of them and it really it rocked her in a way that she's never been the same since to lose her children, you know? Mm -hmm. So she kind of slid off the deep end and we ended up um, homeless. And then she went her separate way and I went mine. And so there was a couple of years in there where I did a lot of couch surfing and a little bit of sleeping outside and stayed in some shelters and stuff like that. Um, And the whole time, like I'm nursing this habit, you know, and also just trying to survive and, you know, sometimes go to school. and then by the time I was 18, I had, I, I figured out I couldn't wait to turn 18 because I had a cousin who was a, a stripper, um, you know, an exotic dancer. And I watched her make great money. And so I was like, you know, I knew that once I was 18, I could like legally earn an income with my body and I didn't have any skills, you know? Right. Um, <clears throat> so I ended up working in gentlemen's clubs for a while, which is like the perfect place to drink for a living it's dark the lights are low there's money there's free booze plenty of attention totally um you're, you're encouraged to be loose and drunk i mean it's great you the more liquor sales you get the better tip out is for everybody you right. know what i mean the more the more booze i consume the better it is for the waitress and the bartender and the barbacks and you know Mm-hmm. It's a yeah. So there's there's a lot of positive reinforcement for these addictive behaviors. Yeah. As a stripper, so so I imagine, and I don't know. I mean, does are you are you feeling like I have reached the pinnacle that I have? This is this is as good as it's gonna get. And like like, do you does it feel great or does it feel horrible? To me, it felt horrible. Okay. Um, I didn't know it was going to feel like that. Um, I just never, I've never actually had the constitution for it. I didn't make a lot of money. First of all, I've always been a little chubby, even at my worst, like, like my worst drug use. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. daily meth use, and I've still managed to have a muffin top, you know? Um, so, so I was not good at it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm kind of awkward and, uh, uh, I, I really, I mean, in some ways, I guess I flourished in the environment because um, I know and understand women. I love my girlfriends, you know, in my life and surrounded by women and, you know, lots of girl talk and stuff. And that was fun. But like the the actual labor of it, I was pretty terrible at. And, um, and quickly, um, that's gross. But in order to survive, you know, because I wasn't a very good hustler. You know, mm-hmm. like I, I just kind of say what's on my mind. I'm not really good at telling you what you want to hear and, you know, making a man think that they're, you know, something I think they're not. I don't do it. I do not know how to do it. Sure. That. Yeah. <laughs> but so, so the alternative to that, you know, like mind hustle is, you know, just trade, mm-hmm. you know, what do you, what do you want? And um, so that became, you know, a, a quick, a quick way to get money. And before you know it, I was pregnant. Um, 
and and then I couldn't even do the job anymore, you know. And I had rented all this furniture because um, I was broke, you know. <laughs> so, um, but I thought that I was rich for about you know sixty days or something. And so I went to one of these furniture rental places and filled up my whole apartment, me and my roommate, with rental furniture and washer and dryer, um, bedroom, just the whole thing. And then couldn't pay for it because that stuff is like, you know, it's six times more expensive than it actually mm-hmm. is worth. And um, she moved out and I was pregnant and I couldn't work and I didn't want them to take my stuff, you know, and uh, it got so bad my electricity was turned off i used through most of my pregnancy um i was using a lot of like uh cocaine and meth Uh back then and um i'd used through a lot of my pregnancy and now i'm broke i'm alone and um these furniture people are knocking on the door every day you know and this is such a dumb crime by the way i wish i was i wish i had cooler criminal stories but this is so stupid like, what did you get charged with the felony for? A couch. <laughs> couch felony. Mm-hmm. A sofa, a washer and dryer. Um, but yeah, the, these people are knocking on my door. They bring the sheriff eventually and um, haul me out of there. I didn't have any power. I'm pregnant and um, I'm going to jail for theft of rental furniture and it's felony charges, you know? So um at that point, my aunt bailed me out of jail and um, I went and stayed with her for a while. And I had my son um, living with her. And that was really the first time in my life where there was some intentionality about not, not using or drinking, you know? I mean, I just, I just loved him so much. I was so infatuated with him, you know? Mm-hmm. And I wanted, I wanted to be more than I felt like I'd been given. And I knew I couldn't continue to drink and use and be that that way so it was like I just stopped because I had I had the right um motive or you know I had just enough to live for that it was like I'm gonna be better now right there you you there was there was a purpose albeit external for staying sober yes okay Absolutely. And that really became confusing when I finally got sober. Like when, when I was practicing a program, like a 12 step program, mm-hmm. and I had a sponsor and, you know, was trying to admit this powerlessness because I would look back at those first few years of my son's life. Like, well, I mean, you know, we say, we say we don't have any control over it for a while. I had control, you know, I went from like having zero control since day one to suddenly like, no thanks, you know, or mm-hmm. I've had enough. And I, I'll, I'll never really have an explanation for why loving him so much was enough for a while, you know? And then it just wasn't anymore. It was like one day I took some pills that somebody gave me some, you know, mm-hmm. hydrocodone or something. And I had been kind of taking them you know, here and there, this woman would give them to me occasionally and a friend. And then it was like, I can't even remember the day, but there was just a point where I had no control anymore. And I never was able to regain it from that point on, you know? 
And how long did that go on for? Uh, seven or eight years. Um, <laughs> and those last, the last year or two, it was like every day, you know, I, I talked about like not wanting to stop when I was younger and mm -hmm. the last year or two, I don't know if it was like this for you, but it, it was like, I wanted so badly to stop, you know? And, and so I would negotiate with myself. Tomorrow's going to be different. You know, tomorrow I'm not going to, tomorrow I'm not going to drink like this. Tomorrow I'm not going to, I'm not going to smoke this stuff. You know, I'm, I got to get through what I've got, you know, let me smoke this. <laughs> got to finish my stuff. There's no reason to throw it out now. Right. I got to, I'll, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's been good money on this, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> I'm going to finish it, but then I'm done, you know, and this is what I do with food now. When you were talking about food earlier, mm -hmm. you mentioned that is that is what food is like for me right now in the midst of this pandemic is I have so many tomorrows with carbohydrates, you know? Yes, I do. I do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I do. I do mine minus minus, yeah, it's it's sugar all the way. And so if it comes in the house and I'll see myself, I'll see my, I'll be like watching myself buy these things, <laughs> knowing that I don't really that I'm only gonna eat them all at once or within a day or two and then it's all going to be gone and i i know better and i know exactly what this is and why i'm doing it and i can't stop myself and then i'm there and i'm like well now i'm sick and well but i can't throw it away because it's not garbage because i paid good money for it right <laughs> and it's it's absolutely preposterous because it's just garbage and it's just trash that i dragged into the house because my brain is wired to look for some sort of excitement or pleasure or comfort or relief or it's release true. or yes. any of that. And so I'm like, okay, well, stop it. You're not even hungry. Well, the hunger never stopped you before. So <laughs> yes. Yes. So I, I completely understand um, yeah. all of that. A hundred percent. It's exactly the same. It's so, <laughs> so frustrating. Cause I feel caught in this mm -hmm. sick cycle that's making me unhappy you know and yet i'm like what is the solution for this it it's almost like because it's a different solution or a different it's a different addiction mm -hmm. it feels to me like the solution is different but it's not it's not well it's like my buddy's dad put it he said the thing with food addiction is it's imagine if you're if you're as alcoholics that um and exactly as we are now and being in recovery and all this if you if i said to you um you have to have three shots of tequila a day and only three to survive and so it's like the madness around imagining three shots of tequila is the same thing as whatever it is if it's ice cream or if it's croissants or if it's do you know what i mean oh, and so Powdered donuts. Yes. Um, I was looking at this. I saw some little infographic about donuts versus how many miles I have to run to burn each one off. And I was like, Oh my God. <laughs> so, so yes, yes. It's, um, it's maddening. And so the, I feel like the, um, the solution is similar, but there has to be, again, this, I, I have to change my mind about this stuff. Right. I have to be able to look at it differently so that it doesn't have the same allure. Yeah. Because absolutely. <laughs> which again is it's it's like 
there either it's it's not an overnight epiphany sometimes it's this thing i have to learn through butting my head against the wall every single time whether yeah. you know and so that's kind of where i'm at in that oh. process and trying to go okay this is you learning it's going to be all right it's yeah. just a little bit of sugar and it's not going to kill you right away and it's not alcohol but let's just be mindful here even if we're going to indulge it and ignore the you know so yes yeah. yes i i understand so but in that last year of drinking and drugs um and you talk about the feeling of god i just wanted to stop and if something would stop and something would would help me then i would be willing um, you know, and we talk in the 12 steps, there's like the step zero of the shit has got mm -hmm. to stop. Yes. <laughs> what was the, what was your moment of clarity or rock bottom or the, 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 the moment where you were like, I, I can't anymore. I have to do something. It was losing my job. Um, I had, I was working in the apartment business and I had like all this pride about, you know, the job that I was doing. Um, mainly because I lost a job and it was an important job to me. I had like, um, I was managing an apartment community and I had moved in, like I had a boyfriend that lived there and then his baby mama lived there and mm -hmm. a drug dealer that lived there. And I was like running my little queendom, you know? Um, and, and I was also stealing and I got caught. Um, uh, it was funding my habit, you know, and um, I got caught, I got fired and I was about to be evicted. And um, my son was seven or eight, I guess, uh, eight or nine. And I had this drug dealer who I'd moved in at like a few buildings down. And um, so I'm, I'm out of work, I'm about, we're about to be evicted. And my aunt has just told me like, you have a problem. We, I had this really, heart to heart conversation, you know, where she's like, you are effed up, you know? And we, if you don't do something about it, I mean, I'm worried that somebody's gonna have to like intervene and, you know, with your son because this is dangerous and scary. Mm -hmm. um, and so I had that in the back of my head. Well, I went down that same night to my drug dealer's house. I put my son to bed. I went to my dealer's house and I was just gonna run down there you know, and grab something and come back home and smoke it or whatever. And um, I went down there and I just lost track of time. And it was maybe eight o'clock when I went. And when I was walking home, the sun was coming up. And um, I walked into my house and my son was there and he was bawling, like he was, you know, heaving. And he had been, you know, um, just clearly crying all night. And I was so devastated, you know? I mean, just looking at him and I'd, I'd caused all this pain. Um, so I, once he got settled back down again, I remember like falling to my knees, you know, and saying, please God help me. Um, and I think that's, important to me to talk about just because not for religious reasons or anything like that but because I no one told me to do that you know no one said get down on your knees and pray that you know 
I just, it's, uh, it's resonates with me because it was just an innate response to pain, you know, to fall to my knees and ask something bigger than me to help me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I ended up going to a treatment center within like the next 48 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, so don't bark. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I have some real strong opinions or belief in foxhole prayers, you know? And what is, what I, is a foxhole prayer? Like what um, you-, you know, like there are no atheists in the foxhole, like in, in war, in battle, right? Okay. Yes, yes. No, nobody's like, please, Coke machine, help me. You know, mm-hmm. please, we say in the program a lot, you'll hear people say like that doorknob can be your higher power. Can it? Because you don't fall to your knees and you know, in a foxhole and say, please doorknob, you know, help right. me. Right. I knew a guy whose um, higher power was the ocean. And I love the way he tells the story because he talks about the ocean being big enough when he, in his early sobriety. And then um, after 10 or 12 years, you know, he said, I, I went back to the coast and he was, you know, standing on the water and he realized that like, this is no longer big enough to be my God, you know? Mm. Um, Cause I think that, but you can't you can't put God in a in a box or an idea or you know whatever that is. Yeah, is fundamental. They I once heard it um, described as God. God is a metaphor, right? A metaphor for what we don't know and we can't say, and we don't have the language for it. So we use the word God. And that's, that's it. Right. So we can't, I, I have no other way of saying, expressing to you what it is that I feel or see or look up to, or, you know, pray to. So I just say God, because I don't have another word. And um, <laughs> yeah, it was, um, there, it's actually, it's a, from this book called God sex comedy or God comedy sex by this comedian, Pete Holmes. And um, it was, Oh, I love Holmes. Yes, yes. So I highly suggest that book. Um, it's got lots of good uh, tidbits in it about that, but that was one of them. Um, so you go to this treatment center, and obvi- I assume—I don't want to say obviously—I assume they they put turn you on to some twelve-step program. Yes, and I've gone to a twelve-step program like back when I was a kid and all that time, mm-hmm. you know. But um, I, I actually checked myself out of that treatment center in a ra- fit of rage after a few days because the, my family didn't come to visit me and I was mad and throwing a fit and um, mm. you know, no one was there on visiting day for me. And, um, and so I'm like pouting about it and I'm telling them in, in a group therapy, whatever afterward, you know, about how horrible my mom is, you know, all of the ways that she harmed me blah, 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 blah. and the, the counselor's like, well, have you prayed for her? And I was like, Pissed! you know, like, what are you saying? Did you hear anything I just said to you? She is evil. Uh-huh. And I got up and I just left the place, just walked out of the place. And as I'm walking out of the room, she's like, if you leave here, you're not doing it because you're mad at me. You're doing it so you can go and get high. And <laughs> so I crossed the street. There are these apartments across the street. I crossed the street. There's a guy sitting in a Cadillac and he's like smoking a blunt, you know, and playing music with his windows rolled down. Um, and so I walk up to him because I don't have my cell phone or anything. I've left everything locked up with the treatment center, you know, 
So I walk up to him and I'm like, hey man, can I use your phone? And he says, hey, do you party? You know? And he wants to pass me this blunt. And all I can hear is this stupid bitch in my head, you know? And so I like say no at her, you know? Um, and immediately, like I called my, my family and they came and picked me up and I went to uh, a group that I knew of, you know, mm-hmm. the next day. And yeah, I stayed sober then for like two years, almost two years. Um, I, I did relapse, uh, but it, it, it really laid some great foundation for me in that time. Yeah, it's uh, it's I've also been I've also heard it said that, um, you know, AA or 12 step will really ruin your drinking <laughs> once you yes! get some of it in you. Right. Yes. Uh huh. Um, and so this what what can I ask, like what the relapse? Was there something in particular or was it? For sure. OK. Um, I mean, I I am responsible for my own behavior, but I make terrible decisions around men and okay. um there was a guy who came into the program. I okay, wait. First of all, let me. I want to put all that back in my mouth. Okay. Because first things first, before the guy or whatever, I never thought that I was actually an alcoholic. Still, I had all this evidence, but all of those two years, I would sit in meetings and I would think how sad it was that you know, like people were not going to be able to drink again. Cause I was there cause my life was on fire. You know, I had burned mm-hmm. my life to the ground and I was trying to figure out how to rebuild it. And then once I could rebuild it, I would, you know, commence to drinking again because that, you know, it's like how you're happy. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, I do. So there was that, that was the biggest reason that I relapsed. It, it coincided with a man who you know, wore house shoes to the meeting and looked like he'd just gotten out of prison. And I thought that was super sexy. And <laughs> he had uh, maybe, you know, 30 days of sobriety when we met. And um, he was like sleeping on his mom's floor. It was hot. And right. uh, <laughs> so we had this, you know, torrid love affair when his mom was asleep, you know, at his mom's house in the floor and um and he was never actually I don't even know if he was ever actually sober but um he worked together one night we like got a hotel room and he was drinking and I was still sober at the point at that dry at that point and he goes to hand me a beer you know and he's like just drink it just drink it and I was so I was so enraged with him this is like on a Saturday so Sunday, I spend stewing over him. Monday, over that incident, you know, like mm-hmm. how dare you try my sobriety, you know? And then Monday, I chair a meeting at my group, a newcomer meeting, and I chaired it like I had the answer for everybody, you know? I just remember talking about like, you know, I, I maybe pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization, you know, and the four horsemen and things like that and slamming my hands on the table, you know, telling people this will kill you, you know? And Tuesday morning I woke up and I called a friend that I had been high with. And by Tuesday night, I, I was smoking a pipe in my bathroom. And I remember taking a hit of the pipe, um, sliding down the wall in my bed. I hadn't even taken a drink yet. I'd had no beer, no whiskey, no wine, no nothing. Um, I remember like, 
sliding down the wall in my bathroom about 15 seconds after I'd hit that pipe and thinking, what have I done? You know, what have I done? It was like, that is all it took for me to understand the, the phenomenon of craving. I knew the moment I had lit the match that I couldn't put the fire out, you know? And then I drank for three weeks, three short weeks. I burned my life to the ground. We got kicked out of where we were living because we were living with sober people. Um, I was, I had taken a bag of dope with me to my job the next day and was using it in the bathroom, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and the whole time, like I have all of that program, all that big book stuff in my head, you know? And I'm, I'm understanding now, you know, I, now I get why they tell you to go to the bar and try to have a few, see how that works out. You know, there would be days in there where I would just drink and just try to have a drink or two. And, I mean, I could, I could drink two beers right. and I would be right. miserable, you know? Right. <clears throat> right. So that's, what? that's the difference, right? That, that you were miserable. You're like, sure, I could do it. And I've talked to other people. Sure. I did it. I, I talked to a, a one guy I know, and he says, I was, I was dry for five years and I hated every second of it until, <laughs> until yes. I figured it out. Right. Yeah. <laughs> until yeah. I got sober, I was dry right. for five years, but it didn't, but I hated every second of it. So like yeah. you have those two beers in a day and miserable. Yeah. Why would we do that to ourselves? I cannot comprehend, you know, eating. Uh, uh, I was going to say eating. Two donuts. <laughs> the answer's in somewhere. I swear. I don't know. That was Freudian. <laughs> I cannot comprehend drinking two beers, like to set out to do that. That's yeah. So I get fired up about things. I'm sorry, John. <laughs> no, you're fine. It's no, that's the, not a problem um so the three weeks and then you're finally done you did it you went back out you found out that it doesn't work that it was miserable that you hated it that you cannot control the drinking right or the using yeah and i came back in like one of those days some of my girlfriends you know if you're in the program or if you're not not in the program because you think it's awful like i just think some of the people in the program are so great, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, I still have friends from those from 2006 girls that I met in 06 that we have a weekly Zoom right now during the pandemic, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and some of those women, when I was out, came to my apartment, beat down my door, you know, tried to drag me back to the group and I cussed them out and slammed the door in their face, you know? Um, but a few days later, I, I, I had to pick up a chip a couple times, you know, came in a few different days during that three weeks. Like, okay, today I'm done, you know, that one. And, um, and there wasn't any kind of like, there was no spark or I wasn't aware I was done when I was done. You know, I spent that first six months wanting to drink every single day. The first time I'd gotten sober, it was like, all right, cool. I'm going to do this. Let me get my life together. And I didn't really think about it a lot. You know, this time I thought about it every day, you know, and I don't, I don't really know exactly why that is. I, I, I really had to fight it. Um, and I would call my sponsor and, you know, we would just talk all, you know, play the tape all the way through or, um, you know, okay, you can drink, you know, 
let's talk about let's talk about what happens you know i mean you can drink go ahead if you need to talk let's talk about what that looks like tomorrow you know right. and so it would just you know one excruciatingly slow day at a time i didn't i didn't drink until i finally um we got to the fifth step and when i did my inventory with my sponsor that's really where things changed for me in a dramatic way sure yeah when you start to hear yourself <laughs> say these things out loud to another person and um i was talking to a friend of mine about this and he was and he doesn't drink but he's never been through the program he just kind of quit on his own it was mostly health reasons and so on and so forth but he has a lot of issues with being angry and being you know and and just to have bottling it all up and and things will come up and people from his past will come up and He's like, I, and I go through all the meditation and I do the breathing and all this stuff. And I still have this anger. And I said, he's, and I'm, you know, he, he said to me, well, I, no, I get it. I get the philosophy of letting it go. And I said, well, I know you get the philosophy, but here's the application. <laughs> you know, you have to write it down and you have to share yeah. it with somebody else. There's the application. And, you know, like, and that was, it was an epiphany to me to tell him that, to realize like, oh, that's such a huge part of all of this, of all the mess that's in my head was write it down, find out, especially like what my part is in all of it, and then share it with somebody else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know. And be willing to hear what they have to say in return. Mm -hmm. you know? right. Hopefully you've chosen someone who's, you know, kind and gracious with you, yeah, but also yeah. honest. Yeah. Email. Yeah. Um, and so how long has it been then? How many, how many years do you have at this point? Um, it will be 13 on February 16th. That's awesome. Whoop, whoop. I know it feels really good. I went to an in-person meeting today. Um, mm -hmm. I haven't really been to many since the pandemic started, you know, and, um, but every now and then I'll pop into one and, um, I went to one today and I'm just was, Golly, the way that sobriety has changed everything. It every time I like stop to think about where I might be, you know, it's mm -hmm. like it's it's pretty chilling, you know. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm just really grateful, you know. Yeah. yeah, I mean, just I would I would probably be doing the same exact thing. I would feel probably a lot worse, <laughs> you know, and yeah. I'd be in a lot more trouble on some, on some level, right. health-wise, financial. What's that? Oh, sorry. How long have you been sober? Um, it'll be, well, not until the summer, but five, five and a half, five nice. years. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. It's a trip. Sometimes I think about it because I used to count the days and then I stopped counting the days. And then I look back and I was like, oh, that's a lot of days. That's not bad. All right. Well, so it's a nice reminder. I mean, certainly I'm a firm believer in the, there's only 24 hours, right? But, you know, it, it's it's also, I'm also somebody who um, is very quick to discount and dismiss my achievements and focus more on my failures. <laughs> so <laughs> to look back and go, oh, five and a half years sober without a drink. Like yeah. that's a big deal, John. So you, you, can, you can own that. 
and you don't have to, you know, you don't have to worry about how miserable the first two were or, you know, how you didn't do it perfect. Right. Cause what's perfect. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, you know, you're making these daily contributions to other people's lives, you know, yeah. that you will probably never see the effects of, you know, yeah. and, but here you are still doing it, right. you know, and it's, I mean, it's pretty cool. You've made a, a, a tremendous impact on my Saturday. <laughs> is it Saturday? <laughs> I forget sometimes. Yes. Yes. I have it written down just to make sure. Um, yeah. But yeah, can you, so, so 13, 13 years on mm -hmm. February 16th. 16th. Yeah. That's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. Um, can you talk about Black Recovery Matters? Because that's yeah. where I found you. Oh, sure. So, um, you know, I talked about being biracial and um, mm -hmm. that's had a real big impact on um, just my view of myself and the world. Um, and I'll be as honest as I know how to be. Um, I never really put a lot of thought into the amount of black people that were in the rooms in AA or NA or any other meeting that I attended um, for a long time. As a matter of fact, I would get annoyed because ugh, I'm gonna say something that's gonna be a little bit controversial and probably offend okay. some people. And so I'm just sorry ahead of time um but like you know there's this thing that with white people where they see a black if i have a white friend who is not aware that this pisses me off they may see a black man walk into a room and go hey. like he's just like a dude with a heartbeat you know but all of a sudden they're like they think that we ought to be an item because he's black and i'm black you know <sighs> Like the only thing we have in common is our skin color. We don't even know this guy's name, you know? Right. Um, he's just black in here. And that's how few there are. You know what I mean? That right. like there's so few black people in the in the rooms that someone walks in and my white girlfriend automatically thinks he's my husband. Um, so I would get pissed off even, you know? Sure. Um, but I've done a lot of work around my race and my own um, perception of myself the last couple of years and it's coincided with this social justice kind of movement that's been happening in the world and um, so you know a year or two ago I got really really uh, frustrated with the lack of I live in Texas I'm in Dallas and mm -hmm. um, there just weren't a lot of black people in in the rooms of AA and then I started to do some research and found that um, on the whole the black community seeks therapy and recovery at a higher level than any other um, ethnic group. And yet the failure level, the relapse level is higher than any other ethnic group. Like their, their retention is abysmal. Mm -hmm. So I started paying attention, you know, and then um, Ahmaud Aubrey was killed and the video was out. And then George Floyd was killed and the video was out. And then I started protesting and I'd be out in the street, you know, protesting or watching things online and so emotional about it, you know? Just like no one should be killed because their skin is dark, you know? Um, or because like my son is 6'1", 250, you know, he's a big dude and uh, with dreads. And he's like, he has the temperament of, uh, you know, a rowdy, like, or a, a, a docile kitten. Like he is just a very soft, kind person with a, big body and presentation in the world 
and you know if you don't know him you could be threatened by him and that would make me mad um and there was nowhere where that was where i was able to talk about that you know there was nowhere where i was able to say to express frustration that people who look like me and weren't staying in the rooms and watching how um when you know black or brown people would come into a room they would not be circled around you know they wouldn't be enveloped you know like a cute blonde or whatever you know mm-hmm. <laughs> i mean and that's the world we live in right so i don't know why i would expect for it to be different in the rooms but that we say it's different you know and so I got so pissed off about it one night. I was I was doing a Zoom meeting with some people in my recovery family, and I was, you know, I was the lid had just come off, and I was just spewing about how mad I was, and um, and I said, I think I'm going to start a group, you know, I think I'm going to start something. So I started doing this weekly black coffee meeting, um, which is kind of on hold at the moment. Um, and it turned into this Black Recovery Matters Instagram page. And, um, and then I got really heavy into the Instagram community and I've gotten, I feel stalled, you know? Um, Instagram is a weird, weird world of recovery goulash, you know? Like, yes, yes, it is. <laughs> it is a very weird world of recovery goulash. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Right. I like, agree. I, I, I'm such an old, I'm old. I'm 42 years old. I've been sober 13 years. I've been in the program for 15. And so I'm like, you know, don't drink, don't do drugs. That's how, that's what sober is. And then there's the whole, like, we do mushrooms, you know, or mm-hmm. we do this and we're sober and we drop acid and we're sober. And I cannot figure out how to wrap my brain around having a conversation around recovery that speaks to I guess it's because I'm trying to speak to people and I'm not maybe being as authentic as I could be actually. You know, and I've, I've spoken with people who do mushrooms and are mm-hmm. sober and uh, you know, there's one, one gentleman in particular, we talk about him a lot on the program and I, his name is Mishka Shubali. And, you know, he just, I think he's got 11 years this year sober and he does it once or twice a year. And it's kind of, it's more of a medicinal thing for him. And um, it really opened my eyes up to it because I was like, absolutely not. There's no, there's no room for that kind of stuff. And it's like, Mm -hmm. well, maybe not for me and that's fine. And if somebody asks me what I feel, how I feel about it, it's like, I have done all the mushrooms and acid I ever need to do for the rest of my life. But If you feel so inclined and if it somehow brings you closer to whatever it is that you need to not drink, then by all means do it, but don't lie to me and don't lie to yourself about what it's fulfilling or not. You know what I mean? So that's only, that's only something that we can find personally. And so, and so that was something that was, it was about, you know, the definition of sobriety. Now, I don't ever have any desire to try drugs or do that, any of that stuff ever again, but yeah, it's, it's a weird goulash and not everybody (laughs) is, is on the same program. Right. Yeah. And, (laughs) and I suppose that's fine, but you know, when I just, when I see like 
your page and I'm like, oh, okay, yes, this makes sense. And this resonates with me. And, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what to say. I mean, I guess there's different, different flavors of sobriety. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I have a, I have a friend who got sober in the program. She, you know, she's got tons of followers, shout out to Lara and Frazier. Um, but she has like this whole, this whole thing, you know, about how she left AA and, um, and I mean, it resonates with me. I mean, I freaking get it. I've been so deeply like, you know, I just don't, do I really need this, you know? Mm -hmm. um, the, what's frustrating to me is that I found out that I do. I mean, I do, I hate it, but I, I get really mad at it. I, there's so many things wrong in there. People are, people suck, you know, the, the personalities drive me insane. And, you know, there's the dogma that's not supposed to be there, but I have tried to, you know, go months at a time and not, you know, practice, like actively practice the 12 steps. Mm -hmm. And I'm a stark raving lunatic. I'm stark raving sober, you know? Yeah. I mean, I just become like this road raging, muffin eaten maniac, you know? Mm -hmm. I do. So, I go back to the program. And so I guess I, my, I, my, I can't reconcile leaving it because of the way, the way I behave when I do, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's uh, me. And it's, yeah. And that's me. There's just something about, I, I came to realize it was, I need structure without yeah. this. I don't have any structure and it's totally like, I am susceptible to the self-will run riot like nobody's business. So I need to not let the self-will in because when I start to let it in, that's when the muffins and the road rage kick in, right? <laughs> yeah, yes, um, exactly. But yeah, so, so Black Recovery Matters and you said you were doing like a Black coffee group that is on hold and you're feeling, you said you were feeling stuck or stagnant or... Yeah, a little bit. Um, I, I, we stopped doing the meeting because I was having a hard time figuring out where to take it. And mm -hmm. um, I think what I keep coming back to is that I got sober in a 12-step program. And so I think anything that I begin is going to have to be a 12-step program. And yeah. I really had a hard time like um, putting my putting a label on that for a while, you know, it was like, let's just talk about what's going on in the world. And that was really great too. It was, honestly, it was kind of life-saving for a couple of months there, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but you know, I got, I got super confused with all of the different messages out there about recovery. And what I've really, I think ultimately decided is that my version of recovery is 12 step related. It's how I know how to talk about it, yeah. you know? how I stay sane and you know maintain some sanity and so I don't I don't know exactly what's going to happen with the black coffee meeting but black recovery matters has really become um I'm trying to get my face off of it um so that it's just about recovery you know mm -hmm. and that I, I really want to make a uh, make I think there should be more information out there for black alcoholics and drug addicts to let them know, you know, that there's, there is recovery out there and you are welcome. And there, there are ways to meet people where you can do your inventory 
and you can talk about the trauma that you, has been inflicted upon you as a result of just the way you look, you know, without someone telling you that's not real. Because I think one of the things that drives black alcoholics and drug addicts out the door um, is sometimes having to sit with someone in a conversation who might tell you, might say, you might tell them something um, about your experience that's really affected you deeply racially. And then they'll say, but do you really think that's because you were black? Yes. I unequivocally know that it's because of my race, you know, and that is not helpful, you know? Um, so stop doing that, y'all. <laughs> yes, yes, I, I, I am, uh, it, yes. Yeah, I agree. Stop doing that. <laughs> this is fun. This is really fun. Good. Well, yeah, of course, of course. I just, I'm, I'm glad that I reached out to you and I'm glad that you said yes and we could organize this. And I think it's just one of the things, so there's two things with, with recovery is that I think it's really important for, especially for me to find somebody that I can relate to, that is relatable, that I, that I can see myself as, um, and that has been, you know, um, so important in when I found my, my sponsor and when I talk to people, the other part that I don't see as often is inclusion mm -hmm. and listening to people who are not like me yeah. and, and that, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, uh -huh. so, and so this is, this is the other part of that for me to get sober. I had to find, I had to find an old white guy that I wanted <laughs> to be like, yeah. at some point I'm going to be an old white guy. Okay. <laughs> so I had right. to find one that worked for me. Yes. I'm not saying that's for everybody, but I found myself only listening to old white guys. Yeah. And I kept hearing the same message mm -hmm. and the same issues and the same problems and the same solutions. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I, and I will continue, but I mm -hmm. wanted to hear other people who weren't like me, who didn't look like me, who, you know, Yes. were as different from me as is possible because mm -hmm. <laughs> it's yeah, important. It is important. I mean, there's, there's so much growth in that, you know, I mean that, I think that's a big part of how we grow is new experiences and sometimes discomfort, you know, I mean, and I think, I think, uh, I think that as a black person, I hate when I try to start speaking for all the black people because that's really not cool. Um, but you know, there is there's just so much identification out there if you're white, you know, like the world is just kind of it's made for you, it looks like you, you know, it echoes your experience. And I know that's changing more and more, you know. It, I mean, like that show Bridgerton, you know, just I haven't note. seen it, but yes, dude, it, I thought it was going to be so stupid, but it was so great. And it, to me, for me, it was so mm -hmm. great because it has all of these black and brown people in it, their characters, 
and that there's never a conversation about their, them being black or brown. It's like, what if black or brown people were just like people and it didn't have to be about if they were black <laughs> or brown, if there had never been, you know, mm-hmm. a thing where you were less than to try to overcome, you know, here's what the story could look like. And it's yeah. cool. It's super dope. Just thinking about, I hope that's what the world looks like, you know, uh, however many years from now that it's yeah. not a thing that we think about. You don't have to say how cool we have a, a the our first black South Asian female vice president. It's like, you know, it just is a thing like, oh, wow, she was super qualified. He was super qualified, you know? And there've been so many of these, all these different colors that it doesn't matter anymore. Right. You know? Now, is it true that Bridgerton is on Netflix because they wouldn't give Shonda Rhimes a Disney pass? Is that the yeah. story that I heard? That yeah, she, she quit. Asked, she <laughs> quit, but she was working for what NBC or ABC or one of those? ABC, I think. Yeah. ABC. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they were like, "Hey, can we get a Disney pass for my for a family member?" And they finally, they said no, or they said, yeah, whatever. And then they tried to use it and it didn't work. And they just Mm -hmm. dismissed her entirely. And so she's like, like, tried to make her pay for it. Yeah. And she was like, all right, (laughs) I'm going to take all of my million dollar making series to Uh Netflix. And boom, straight out the gate. The first one is like trending, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. There's a lot of really cool things happening in the midst of all this. Yeah. Um, you know, and one of her other, one of her other characters and, um, how to get away with murder. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what's, what's the character's name in that, in that show? I don't remember. Oh, now. Annalise. Thank you. Annalise. Uh-huh. She's a raging alcoholic and it is, <laughs> is such a drunk. <laughs> and I'm just like, yeah, warm vodka in the bedstand. Like that was my, that was my thing too. Yeah. Oh, and she's so she's so representative of the control freak because she like uh-huh. I mean this woman is like murdering people across town, convinced that she is the only one who can save you. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Because she has the skill, and if you right. just did what she thought you should do, everything would have been fine. You know? Mm-hmm. And then and then it blows up, and then she's got to get drunk again. And you know, I'm like, wow, that. That is such a that is a great representation of alcoholism. Mm-hmm. You know? It really is, Mr. If, Gibbons. Um, <laughs> if only you guys would do what I said. Right. You know? everything, everything would be would fine. Be- <laughs> it's it's so true. And so um, I don't know if I I haven't I don't know if I've watched it recently. I don't know. I think she does sober up for a little while, but not really. And then yeah. like it's always a little something on the side. And I mean that's. Yeah. So I just, you know, I just want to thank you for, for coming on the show and for doing what you do. And um, there's definitely not, I don't want to say not there, there's always room for more inclusion in recovery and sobriety and AA or whatever, you know, brand form or, you know, style suits people. We definitely... I feel like the more people, the better. <laughs> and not Absolutely. just the ones that look like me. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> There's hope for each and every one of us. Yes. Cool. Mm. Thank you for having me. You bet, Chrissy. I have loved um, this. Yeah, me too. Thanks again for listening. Our music, as always, is by Neglect. You can find more of his stuff at neglect.bandcamp.com. And you can find us on all social media platforms that matter. Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can reach us at a is for alcoholic at gmail.com.
Talk to you later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>